Welcome to Shit Your Teenagers Won't Tell You, a podcast about everything you need to know about teens. I'm Kathy. And I'm Meredith. And we speak teenager. Uh, did we also mention that we're best friends? We've worked as admission officers, prep school administrators, and most importantly, have coached thousands of teens. In other words, we have seen it all. So join us every week as we give you the lowdown on all the shit your teenager isn't telling you. Because trust us, there's a lot of it. And if you don't know what to do with the teenagers in your life, don't worry. We've got your back. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Shit Your Teenagers Won't Tell You. And today's guest, we have a guest today, a very special guest, very excited, is our very good friend and former colleague, John Burdick. And John is joining us after many years in the admission game. You were at, John, USC, our alma mater, for 18 years. And then you were at the University of Rochester for 16 years as the Dean of Admission and Financial Aid, and most recently finished a stint as Vice Provost at Cornell University. And so in addition to these pretty significant admission roles for quite a long time, you've seen a lot of changes in the admission landscape, and we're pumped to kind of get your take on all of those changes. You are also well known for sort of being a leader in the industry on issues related to innovation in the admission process, on access, and sort of persistence for students once they matriculate to college. And I also, you know, it seems like this is a trend on this podcast. You don't know this, John, but we had Tim from USC on and Kathy. I didn't know this actually, Kathy, that Tim was the reason your career got started in education and admission. And John, you are the reason that my career got started. You were the first person to hire me at USC. I think I spent not very many months working for you before I moved over to central admission. And so I feel like you are responsible for my career. So before we like ask you a bunch of questions, I just wanted to say thank you and how much I appreciate that because it wouldn't have happened if you hadn't actually decided to hire 21-year-old Meredith who knew absolutely nothing. I know, but I have some pretty good memories of you working in our office. That was our our little three or four person admission office on the arts I and know. sciences college on, on the advising. You said Tim was responsible for me, but I was actually responsible for Tim. He was one of my work study students or a work study student in our admissions office. No, Tim was responsible for Kathy. Tim hired Kathy, not you. Oh, I see. So we've got a, we've got a downline going on here. Okay, great. Wait, so you hired Tim. I didn't hire him, but I had been on the East Coast as a regional representative for USC. And when I came back, Tim had been hired as a work-study student there by one of the employees reporting to me. So I, I was aware of him as a skinny kid running all over the place from Wisconsin, <laughs> which I've never failed to remind him of every time I've met him since. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. What if, So those of you listening, you can start to tell that the admission world is a small world, a small, wonderful, friendly world. John, welcome to the podcast. We're super excited to have you. We have lots of different things we want to talk to you about and pick your brain about, but just given your breadth of experience in the admission industry and the different kinds of institutions where you've worked and the different sort of facets in which you've worked at them, I would just love to hear your sort of two cents on what you see as some of the biggest trends happening in admission or some of the biggest sort of changes in the landscape that you think have material impact downstream on families and students applying? I think the number one thing I observe is that admissions has really bifurcated 
in at least two different big splits. Maybe maybe there are other sub-splits beyond that, but it used to be kind of a continuity. There were highly selected places and selected places and less selected places and places that were open enrollment. And there were sort of permeable barriers and definitions between those so that you weren't hyper-focused on what was what. And students would apply to three, four, five universities, and some of them would be relatively stretches and some of them would be relatively easy. But I think the anxiety level was not even 20% of what it is now. And we saw this coming with U.S. News and World Report, I think, was one of the culprits for this. I think of it as like the cosmology, the red shifting and the blue shifting. The the elite places have gotten that much more elite in the sense of they accept so few and such a small percentage. And the places that are open and, and eager for students in every way are all the more so and have gotten much, much, much bigger, including the online and the, and the big community colleges and some of the big state regional colleges. And so it's almost like we've got two-tiered higher education plugged into the system. I think it's not it's not so much real as perceived. I think it's a problem. I think that it's a problem that's eating its own tail because I think those highly selectives, or as my friend Akil Bello calls it, the highly rejectives, are starting to collapse under their own weight. The best evidence for that for me was three places that are wonderful and that I respect, but they all got on in public airwaves and messaging to complain that U.S. News and Report was finally paying some attention to advancing the status for low-income students as one of the ways to measure the success and health of an institution. And they got on to complain that that somehow was departing from the true measurement of quality. And I was just embarrassed for them, this idea that they needed to double down on the principle that elite is elite. And how dare you tell us that we're less elite on the basis of measuring something that really society should value a lot. It was embarrassing. And that tells me that the end is nigh for that concept that elite is something worth pursuing all by itself. Let's be elite for the sake of being elite and exclusive, which I'm happy to see. So you worked at an elite institution <laughs> for, for the last, <laughs> for a few, yeah. And I think your most recent stint at Cornell, right? Everybody knows Cornell. It's an Ivy League college. Lots of parents listening. Lots of folks want to know. And we asked other guests this, but you know, I'm trying to form the question in my brain that I really want to ask, which is around this idea of highly rejective. What does that actually mean? And what wisdom can you give to lay people about what that process really is about and what it entails? So Cornell, while I was there, passed 70,000 applications for about 30 450 spaces. So the math on that is easy to do. And Cornell is one of those places that most people by far who get admitted to Cornell will choose to go. It's a not just a desirable, but a preferred location for lots of people because of the Ivy League. Cornell is a little special within that because it's more than twice as big as the average other Ivy League institution. And it was founded a hundred or more years later than all the others, founded in reconstruction and always had it. It's center a mission of broad access and opportunity. And more so than any of the rest, it's very, very tied into specific admission to a specific major. So there's a lot of variety within Cornell. There are really wonderful programs at Cornell that have 20% admit rates, and then others that have 2% admit rates. And there's nothing that's going to change that overnight, because that's 
computer science and the business program. They're very, very, very popular. So my general advice to the people who are looking at this landscape is stop looking at this landscape. Just look only at the good qualities and the characteristics of the places you want to go. In Cornell's place, it's a pretty big university in a really small town, 31 miles from the nearest interstate. But if I probed and poked those 70,000 applications, I'm sure I'd find a whole bunch that think of themselves as city kids and have no particular interest in being anything in the outdoors, maybe not even a clear interest in being in a seasonal four-season climate like this. And for them to say, oh, I really want to be at Cornell just means they're trying to access that name, just the prestige and the name of being Cornell. That should not be enough. And if that's all that you're after, you might not be satisfied with your experience. Education will be excellent. Your peers will be wonderful. You might love the environment you find yourself in. But if you haven't really decided that the particular truths about Cornell are something that matter to you, then you also might you might succeed. You might graduate, get a good degree, a bunch of different majors and minors and clubs, but you might not ever have been happy with what you were doing. And, and that satisfaction should be a part of your goal in a four-year experience. So I guess my advice is you can't help but notice highly selected places, highly rejected places. And it's tempting to want to test yourself against the best and see if you've got the means, if you've done the right things to be eligible for that. I, I get it. But when it comes down to choosing where you want to be, try to divorce yourself from that as being your only consideration. And I say that with feeling because I do know Cornell students that, again, wonderful, kind, invested, innovative, making the best of their experience here. But I can tell they basically chose to come here for the wrong reason, including the reason that it meant more to their parents to have an Ivy League child than it meant to them to be an Ivy League person. This was a question I thought of after I had emailed you, John, that I wrestle with a lot. And I'm just like, oh, I really want to know what John's opinion is on this. We run into our work all the time where selectivity becomes a proxy for excellent. And how we define excellent is, I think, how families define it is varied. And one of the places where I think this shows up the most is with rankings, with college rankings. And I have been doing college counseling in some form or another for about, I don't know, 15 years or so. And in that entire time, as I've educated myself on rankings and how they're how they're created, how they're crafted, what sort of factors that go, variables go into assigning a rank and try to communicate that to families, it, it still feels like an uphill battle. It still feels like a, on one hand, I don't blame families. I think when you're starting to you know nothing about the process and you're like, hey, who's got good engineering, right? That's a really easy and convenient place to turn. So the question to you is, I'd love just your thoughts on rankings. You know, what would you want families to understand about rankings in terms of how they're crafted or created or the significance they should or should not place on them? And what advice might you have for how to just be a savvy consumer of that kind of information? Yeah, well, it's it's the same way you look at the rankings for the sets of homes that are available for you to buy in your neighborhood and the price tag is similar or the sets of cars you might consider the brands and makes and models that you're interested in. I can't dispute that it's a starting place to say, okay, well, what are the best? Where are the best and and, and what do they offer and, and how much do they relate to what I want to do? So that shorthand is inevitable. And yeah, I, I don't feel like it's fair to tell people don't use that especially when you're starting out or when you just don't know and you've only heard of two or three places at all and one of them's 
the local school or the one your brother or sister went to. So I, I don't I don't dispute their existence. I would caution people that they force distribution. And if anybody's been in ever in a forced distribution grading on a test, you know that's not very comfortable. It's not really based on what you did. It's based on this scattering of you and everybody else across the, the results. And that's where rankings are. So the places I worked prior to Cornell, USC in the 80s and 90s, and then Rochester in the early 2000s, they had outstanding faculty, incredible facilities, a wide range of programs, all kinds of activities, really good students as peers, national reputations. They had a whole lot of the same meat and substance that a Cornell has, but they were just that next increment down in the rankings. I think in both cases where I was working there, they were in the 25 to 50 instead of the top 25. But all the metrics that mattered, they were at least, at worst, a B plus to Cornell's A minus or an A minus to Cornell's A. They weren't really significantly different in meaningful ways. They were just, it's a very attenuated system in terms of that ranking and that scatter. So I would encourage people to think about that, that if if you're looking at 4,000 places to pursue a higher education in the United States, to say that you only want to go into the top 20 is to say, I'm limiting my search to the top half of 1%. That's limiting yourself in in, in atrocious ways. That said, I, I will say when I moved to Cornell, and this is sort of an accident of, of how the world's set up right now, I apologize for the dogs. <laughs> Somebody's coming home. There are great things that go on at a Cornell incredible things that are worth trying for, for these best elite schools. There are really good things going on, but they're a bonus. They're not the core of what you get in class. They're not the core of what you get from a career center or from the friends that you make. All those things, the substance is going to be 99% the same at a Rochester or Cornell. It's that 1% where you get the incredible speakers night after night, or you get the events that come specifically to be at Cornell and to connect with Cornell people. So again, worth pursuing, not worth beating yourself up over. It's not going to make the biggest difference by far in your experience. That's going to be mostly come, what comes from within inside you and secondarily from just that basic strong level of quality that is the hallmark of a lot of U.S. universities and colleges. Thank you for that. I think that one of the things that I struggle with when I'm coaching students is having this conversation and making it the conversation actually about what's inside you. What is it that you actually want first versus looking outwardly, right? And saying, well, I want the best and this is the best and I'm just going to apply to the best. That's that's easy, right? And what I tell them oftentimes when I talk to students, I said, I say, it's really competitive when you're looking at schools with admission rates that are in the single digits or the low double digits, right? And it's not enough to just be, I'm a really good student. I'm excellent at these things. I can compete for this. And I want to, I'm bringing this up because I know you're a member of the Character Collaborative and have been for many years. And I, I'm curious to know your feelings around the role that character plays in the admissions process. And beyond that, in, in students' lives and how they approach this entire process of looking at colleges and thinking about who they are and who they want to be in this world. Yeah, I, I, I distinguish. That's absolutely correct. I, I would distinguish it this way. Character is all the things you do well when nobody else is looking. 
you're not doing them for the immediate benefit and reward and the recognition and the achievement mindset that seems to animate so much of what people otherwise think they need to do to get into a good college. So it takes character to be a player on a team that succeeds when you're not scoring the goal or throwing the game-winning pass. That's different than what it takes to be the star tennis player or the star opera singer in an environment. And and so you see character through things like team participation, collaborative projects, signing on to a research venture because the research itself is interesting and meaningful rather than going and paying for the opportunity to be listed co-author on what's not really a particularly real research project. So, and character shows up in things that have almost no reward in the college admissions process and the character collaborative has been trying to change that. Like, taking care of younger siblings at home so your mom can keep her dental appointment. The things that you wouldn't think you belong on a resume, but genuinely belong as a definition of who you are and, and what matters to you. At the highly, highly selectives, if part of what you're thinking is, okay, how do I demonstrate character in a way that's going to matter to them? Unfortunately, I, I think the best truth of that is effortless. In other words, you're just stating the truth about who you are and what you do and what matters to you and hoping that that engenders an understanding among the readers on that campus that this is evidence of good character. Character won't work if you're shouting, look at here, look at this de demonstration and evidence of my good character. It's almost like you completely destroy it the moment you try to do that. It's revealed more in how other people look at you and approach you and respond to you than it is about anything that you do. I'm just going to, I'm going to always come back to the things we were all taught in kindergarten, but it's so buried by the time we're in in 10th grade and, and and completely lost by the time we're in 12th grade. If you're just aiming to do the right thing, which can include the joy of the things that you do for yourself and the things that you're good at and the things that make money and the things that are big picture questions in the world. If you're aiming hard at doing those right things, let the actual representation of what those things are take care of itself. You don't need to package yourself if you know that you've been doing the right best thing that you could do at any moment all the way along. And I, boy, I've got friends who are hardworking private school counselors and independent counselors. And I know that that sense of let's package this up, let's tell this story is an important concept. But boy, if the story isn't fundamentally sound at its root, then all the dressing in the world, it's not, it's probably not going to fool a Cornell reader. Amen. And especially if it's a, just sudden change in your life. I always make fun of the students who go out for cross country their senior year and then fake an injury because they just wanted credit for being on the team to be able to fill that line item on their application resume. It wasn't because it's something they really wanted to do and and vice versa. Uh, the integrity. You're preaching to the choir. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> it's such an important point that I want to underscore that Kathy and I say all the time, but I think sometimes it's much like when we say something that a child's parent says, they hear it differently from us. And I think when you say something coming straight from the, the mouth, so to speak, it's heard differently. But I think really we try so hard to talk about integrity and values. And if your activities in high school are a natural extension of what matters to you and you have some capacity to explain why it matters to you, then you're you're in good stead, right? And it makes me think about so we talk about values and integrity in the process a lot. 
And something that's been a maybe a, a pain point around integrity, I don't see it as a pain point personally, but rather something to be curious about and work with, is sort of the advent of AI in the admission industry, both sides of the desk, both how might admission offices utilize AI or will they? I think there's some fear amongst families that all of a sudden the human, whatever remaining human aspect is left in highly selective admission will be gone away with. And on the other side, I think, you know, we see students, I had a couple of my students just for fun, for funsies, play around with chat GBT and send me what the writing was. It was so terrible. <laughs> and I, like, you know, a reader who's worked longer than a week will be able to, to tell the difference. But there's, you know, like Khan Academy has some interesting AI tools that are being, there, there are also tools being developed in AI and that I see as there is an argument out there that I think is sound about the way AI could potentially increase access. So I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on the state of AI and the admission process currently, where you see it might be headed that you think is a good thing, where you think we need to be more cautious, perhaps. It's a big question. I appreciate the question. I'll, I'll be kind of absolute about this. No good has ever come from resisting technology. It's here. It is what it is. In this case, there's lots of reason to believe that it's going to continue to get better and better and better. And so the idea that we can duck it or protect ourselves from it or hide it or limit or constrain it in a way that is based on on, on fear and apprehension of, of its misuse, I think is misguided. I think we can certainly embrace thoughtful uses and, and training and management of it as a tool. But the idea that we're just going to wall ourselves off from it and say that that's not a thing in the education process is, I think, a horrible mistake. But I'll give two examples related to the ones you gave. On the admission side, I was out in April or May at a conference here in New York State predicting to a whole audience that was just flabbergasted and unhappy. I said, admissions offices are going to put this to use. And among the things it's probably going to do, and I was sitting next to somebody not long after at another conference who was had worked a long time at UCLA, which hires 400 external readers, my guess is a trained AI taking all the documents and inputs, including the essays and the letters of recommendation, is going to make just as good, actually reliably better with less noise in the system, a preliminary recommendation about the preparation of that student to go into UCLA as the 400 part-time readers who are working super fast, who are not full-time employees of UCLA, where they are aware of all the nuances and questions on that great institution's foundations and works and needs, who were always just reading closely to a rubric to produce a almost a formulaic result and, and recommendation to go on. That's not really a human process. That's an industrial process in which humans play a particular cognitive role. I think AI will do that work. And I think it will be absolutely fine that it does that. That is not the same thing as humans not taking responsibility for the final decisions that emerge from a process. I think that's still in there. But AIs don't get tired. AIs don't feel like they need a drink on Friday afternoon. AIs don't have built-in biases that are undetectable because you didn't know. I had a great reader at Rochester. He's still there. Had him for years. And one of those things was he didn't make Eagle Scout. So he was really pissed off when he read about somebody being an Eagle Scout. He didn't want to say yes to them. Wow. Felt unfair to him. <laughs> but the thing is, he acknowledged that bias. We talked it through. Other people read the Eagle Scouts also. But you're never going to know when 400 part-time readers are bringing those kinds of biases into the questions. It's just, it's too vast an enterprise. AI can do that in minutes. 
filter and, and sequence that out and move it through. So I, I, I fully embrace that admissions offices will be employing AI in judicious and smart ways really soon, if not this next year, then the year after, and there'll be good companies building tools to help them do it. Students, on the other hand, I, I think there's obviously value in human brains training themselves to write well, to interpret information, to distill that information in a new way, to blend and mix that. And I think it's important that admissions offices believe and are confident that they have ways to measure that skill. I'm not sure the standard Common App essay has ever been the best way to do that. It's always been something that could be manipulated in consultation with another writer and another voice. It has always been the case. You talk about admissions officers on discernment. We always know when 50-year-old mom's voice has stepped in and over the 16-year-old son's or daughter's voice in an essay, and that inauthenticity is a problem. So we're not going to escape it. Students are going to, students are using this right now today. Million students right now on ChatGPT4, you know, going back and forth to edit and look at their, at their college essay. Some of it will come out poorly. Some of it will be adjusted and students will learn how to manage the information that comes back to them on ChatGPT to produce a good essay. But to me, I think the bottom line here is this is going to devalue the essay. And we're going to have to come up with other mechanisms to feel like we, A, know who the students are, which is the most important function of the essay, and B, have some other confident inputs into how they write and how their thinking translates into writing and vice versa. So I don't know exactly what those are yet. Yeah. I would hope interviews. Interviews is something I've always valued a lot, and maybe that comes back into the process in some meaningful way. I was going to ask you what you saw on that frontier, if anything, yet, because if you couple the sort of diminished value or impact of an essay with the decrease in use of standardized testing. It's interesting to... We're losing tools. <laughs> yeah, we're sort of, we're taking tools away potentially. And I'm curious what what new tools we would add in. It's starting to feel more European in terms of some of the ways in which, you know, some of the qualitative pieces, if those, you know, that's a sort of distinguishing feature, I'd say, when I work with students applying to U.S. colleges versus abroad. Things are a little more cut and dry abroad. Um, so I'm just curious, yeah, interviews, any other ideas on what other tools you'd like to see colleges leverage? I think in the sense what AI taketh away, it can giveth back. When AP moved to require, and jumping over here, when AP moved to requiring students to commit to taking the test in November, and then created a tool for online engagement from November through April to study and prepare for the test, I was sitting in the College Board Middle State's or maybe the AP council, I, I worked with them for a while and I was hearing this news. I said, oh, give me that data. Give me the information about how students intersect with this tool that's available to them in iterative ways, in crash course ways. Are they methodical? Are they engaged with particular subsets of the material in different ways? Because if I know all of that, then the actual result on the test at the end of all this is less important. I'm actually looking at a movie instead of a snapshot of who this student is with respect to this information, this material. And I think we can build more of that iterative gain process into our admissions functions. And we can go back to earlier times in high school and share this out as a more K through 16 process. And if that ultimately gets rid of the let's all jump off the cliff together of SATs or APs or anything like that, and more into a we've now got a whole flowering of who you've been in your educational process and your journey, we know what your consistent strengths and patterns are as a learner and your output as a learner, then we can make better decisions, much better guided decisions. But that's a lot of data. 
and a lot of interpretation and a lot of analysis. And I think AI tools can help foster that. I mean, let's get real. Barring those people that are absolutely not going to allow this, 15, 16-year-olds, they're on their phone. And Google and Meta and Amazon, they know a hell of a lot about them. We're going to have to try to be smart in that same way to understand as much as we possibly can about who the students are and how they're approaching us and 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 how that best match is made. Yeah, teenagers, stop spending all your time on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> it reminds me of the mastery transcript language, though. You know, it's this portfolio based. I'm going to that. <laughs> I'm going to that conference next week. The mastery transcript. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. It's a little pie in the sky, but the technology, when it's actually anchored there, is actually going to make those mastery transcript consortiums priorities much more real and much more useful. I went to one of the first mastery transcript when I was still at Branson. I don't know. It was like 2016. So I don't know. It was early days. And everyone loved it philosophically and conceptually. And for those listening, the mastery transcript is basically a sort of movement to reimagine grading and assessment of student performance over time. And so like the Cleveland Clinic Med School actually does this where they have sort of their med students build over time portfolios of strengths and it's kind of objectives based grading versus like A, B, here's a test, pen, paper. It's very cool. If you're into progressive education, it's definitely, it allows more students to show skill more diversely, I would say. But, But one of the chief barriers at that time that I'd be so curious if, if AI can help ameliorate was the synthesizing of that data was going to feel too cumbersome to colleges. And so a big barrier for a lot of these preeminent independent schools around the country is we, we like this philosophically, but how will Yale read this? How will they make sense of this? It doesn't fit or conform neatly into AP test scores, et cetera. So yeah, it's a, it's, I'll be curious what you think when you come back to that conference. Yeah, I'm going on behalf of the Council of International Schools because we've been looking, I've been part of a group with them for five years now. We're looking sort of, what is the next wave of assessment? And and technology is driving that in part, but it's also hopefully a broadening recognition that there's way more to each of us as human beings than just our verbal acuity and our math skill at whatever level of training. And frankly, the SAT only measures that level at about 10th grade. So we need better tools. We need better tests that are maybe lower threshold, more gamified, more comprehensive on a wide set of intelligences and skills. And then, frankly, the universities can respond by being more mission-driven and saying, we're not looking for absolute values on this very narrow set of cognitive skills. We're looking for those values we pick and choose to assess at the levels that matter to us. And that's something that gives us the opportunity to communicate not all on a, to go back to the ratings question, we're no longer all communicating on a same linear scale. We're more like a tree. And the branches than the twigs and the leaves that you've pursued are those that matter to you and then matter to that college on the outside of that that's bringing the sunlight and not just one way or the highway and you cross this line or you don't, which is more like life, right? We don't, life is not just one sprint that you win or you lose. And to the extent that our schools and education and transitions have been set up as if that's the case, we've been flawed. Let's blow it up. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I'm all about blowing it up. I am too, so. Yeah. Well, I'm going to be working mostly in Africa now. So Africa has every reason to say, blow the damn thing up. It didn't work for us. We're we're starting to go over. So that's, so I have a great for that. 
Well, it's interesting. Tim was on our podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he was just talking about how so much of this is systemic, right? It's the challenges with the admission process live in the system that it exists in. The high schools are part of the system. The entire education, it's not even high schools, it's middle schools, elementary education, leading all the way up through the college admissions process, how the system itself is really broken in a lot of ways, and that it's Having worked in independent schools, teachers would always be pissed off at colleges because they'd be like, why are kids only doing this because they, they're doing it for the college process? And the colleges were like, well, because that's what we want. <laughs> so like, we're not changing our standards. And the schools are like, we're not going to change the way that we do things. And at the end of the day, the kids are the ones who are getting stuck and hurt by the system because they don't know what to do. They're just like... I'm supposed to do this. I'm not supposed to do this. I'm, I have to be a good person. I have to. <laughs> I have to do fake research in the summer. I have to do fake research in the summer. I have to start a, a nonprofit organization. Like, ugh, right? And yeah, it, so I would like to blow it all up at many levels. If we could just, if we could just strip it back to the things we know for sure are true. We know that people learn more by speaking and writing productive activity than they learn from just listening and reading. We know that talent on average is distributed pretty evenly. There isn't that, there's no genetic or cultural input value at the fundamental base of all human beings that really makes us different in the way that a test seems to indicate. So we know that we're really looking to try to maximize everybody's opportunity. We know that not everybody can do everything. And so there is value in specialization that is meaningful to the person as they're doing it. There's some fundamental truths about education and progress and opportunity that have nothing to do with the industrialized school process and the even more ugly industrialized transition process we built into higher education. And the other thing I would mention in response to Tim in part is I don't disagree with him that there's a lot of signs of brokenness, but some of that is unique to the United States. And when you look beyond the boundaries of the United States, you find evolving different models. They don't have it perfect either. There's nothing more rigid than the UK and the A-levels and the UCAS system. And they would like to change it to be a better place to churn through their society in the same way that we would. But there's more to this than just the underfunded schools Oh, that's the other thing we all know. Good teaching matters. Good teaching in a sort of a one-to-one process actually matters. Every assessment proves that over and over again. So if we could find our way to support teachers, to encourage variety, to create a much wider set of assessments, then how would we design our schools and our transitions on that basis? And I think almost anybody could say, well, it'd probably be very different than what we're doing now. So that's all the rationale we need, right? This is in our hands, our hands as educators and our hands as a society. I don't know that, I don't think there's that many people left that are vested in things as they are. You know what I mean? They're used to it. It's comfortable. Change management is hard. But even the most elite people are frustrated with the system that supposedly they built and that works for them. Yep. So John, this is just like exactly and more what I thought it was going to be. You know, I always have found the visionary aspect of how you look at admissions to be really compelling. And I feel like this has been such a rich conversation of just on the ground, on a Tuesday, practical advice, but also kind of higher level thinking about 
this profession, you know, this industry that I think often people don't recognize the connection between the secondary level and the, and the post-secondary level in terms of this is really sort of a baton pass, not sort of this strong line of demarcation. So just really appreciate sort of your your broader perspective. You have so much work outside of the United States that I think lends a really just important kind of perspective to some of the egocentrism that I think can dominate American admission processes. I'll leave it at that. So anyway, <laughs> thank you so much. This was fun. <laughs> we so appreciate your time and you are always welcome back. And thank you. And thanks everybody for listening to another episode of Shit Your Teenagers Won't Tell You. We will be back next week with more stuff. Great to see you again, John. Nice to see you both. Thanks. Thank you.